The passage of scripture which we're looking at this evening is Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 26, and our theme for this evening, Jesus Christ is the only hope of salvation. Today there are a bewildering variety of teachings which claim to be the absolute truth. There are many religions claiming to be the only way of salvation. And in the ancient Near East, the situation was very similar. Jesus warned that many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. He also warned that false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Because of this, it was essential that Christ's apostles should be able to prove the validity of their message. To this end, Jesus had enabled them also to be channels for the performing of signs and wonders. These would draw attention to the only true message of salvation, and that message's validity would be proved by its transformation of the lives of those who accepted it. Our passage today gives a fuller account of one of the signs and wonders Jesus' apostles did, and we hear a sermon which explains the source of the power behind it. The sermon declares that from Jesus alone does the miracle of healing come. From him alone does the miracle of salvation come. He alone is the Messiah, the Son of God. He alone is the one whom God has glorified. He alone deserves our worship and obedience. It was the Apostles' great concern that people should know just how unique and glorious Jesus is. And if we're Christians today, we too should have the same concern. We should aim to glorify Christ not only with our words, but also with the lives we lead. First in our passage this evening, we see the sign and its sequel. Our first heading this evening, the sign and its sequel. Verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. The Gospels and the Book of Acts reveal that Peter and John were closely associated. They were partners in a fishing business before their call to be Jesus' disciples. Along with John's brother James, they made up the inner circle of the Twelve Apostles. And in the early chapters of Acts, we find them travelling and ministering together. Here we see them going to the temple together at the ninth hour, which is three in the afternoon. It was both the hour of prayer and the hour of the evening sacrifice. So the temple would have been especially crowded at this time. We're told that on their way into the temple, the two apostles encounter a certain man, lame from his mother's womb. In order to understand how desperate this man's situation was, we need to know something about those days. In the first century, disability was generally a sentence to a lifetime of poverty. It was very difficult for ordinary families to care for the disabled members. Often all that could be done was to take them to the public place often all that could be done was to take them to public places where they could receive alms. And those with disabilities were often considered spiritually or morally inferior. So we can see just how desperate the plight of the beggar in our passage is. We read that this man was laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. 
The beautiful gate was situated inside the Temple Mount area on the western side. It separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. Like the other temple gates, it was large and ornate. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, it was made of Corinthian brass, and it was so large it took twenty men to cl- and it was so large it took twenty men to close it. The lame man is strategically placed at this gate for maximum effect. We're told of him that seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. This man expects mercy in the form of money, but he'll receive the far greater mercy of healing and salvation. Verses 4 to 6. And fixing his eyes on him, with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What Peter says is totally unexpected. The lame man must have been wondering what these men were the lame man must have been wondering what these men were going to give him. Food, clothing perhaps? He probably expected only something to tide him over for the time being. But Peter says to him, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ means by the virtue of Jesus' character, authority and power. To do something in the name of Jesus Christ is to act in accordance with his will. To do what he would do if he were here. To act in his authority and with his delegated power. The beggar had little reason to believe in Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus had been executed as a blasphemer. So the beggar must have found Peter's use of Jesus' name perplexing. But Peter had seen Jesus heal countless times. And now, acting on Jesus' behalf with the power delegated to him, Peter commands the beggar to walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. The lame man is immediately cured. There's no gradual process involved. He has been lame since birth, yet he doesn't need teaching how to walk. He receives his coordination and balance instantly. His disability is completely gone, and his joy and excitement know no bounds. There's no holding him back from exploring his newfound agility. He's uninhibited in praising God. And his antics are a powerful testimony to the miracle of what has happened. The crowd surrounding him are staggered, verses 9 to 10, and all the people saw him walking and And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It's undeniable that there has been a miracle. These people have seen this beggar sitting at the beautiful gate for many years. They all know his condition. In the next chapter we're told that even the Jewish leaders recognise this healing as miraculous. They say, what should we do to these men? 
for indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them, is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. This healing certainly draws the crowd's attention. Verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. A large crowd gathers at the porch surrounding the court of the Gentiles. The man who has been healed stands with the apostles. He's living proof that a miracle has taken place. The stage is set for Peter to preach Christ. And he opens by deflecting the praise and laying the blame. Our second heading this evening, deflecting the praise and laying the blame. Verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Before launching into his theme, Peter first asks two questions. He wants to clear up any confusion the crowd may have about the source of the healing. His first question is, why do you marvel at this? It's a mild rebuke. They'd witnessed the miracles performed by Jesus, which they'd witnessed the miracles performed by Jesus, which demonstrated he was the Messiah, God's Son. And Peter wants them to realize that this miracle has been done in his power. So he then asks the crowd, "Why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk?" These people should know that two Galilean fishermen could never perform such a feat on their own. So now the crowd is presented with a dilemma. They acknowledge God alone as having the power to do miracles. But they've denied that Jesus is God. And they've denied that Jesus' followers, like Peter and John, have divine power guaranteed by God. So they're left with no explanation for what they've just seen. Peter takes full advantage of this dilemma. He directs attention away from himself and John and to Jesus Christ. He makes clear that it's Jesus' power that has accomplished the healing. And he goes on to, explain, and he goes on to explore exactly why Jesus can enable such miracles. First, he speaks of Jesus as God's servant whom God glorified. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Since Peter's message is directly mainly to Jews, he chooses a familiar Jewish description of God. He is the God the people's illustrious ancestors worshipped. And it's he who glorified Jesus, his servant and their Messiah. Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He also said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he added, I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. Jesus' ultimate act as God's servant had been to die to save sinners. When that act of suffering was over, God raised Jesus from the dead. And he glorified him, exalting him to the position of honour at his right hand.
But Peter now contrasts Jesus' glorification with how he was treated while he was still here on earth. Instead of welcoming Jesus, his own nation had rejected him. They were looking for a political or military deliverer to throw off the hated oppression of Rome. They weren't prepared to accept the one who came to confront their sin and deliver them from it. And Peter says to the crowd that it's this Jesus whom they delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Pilate, the Roman governor, had been well aware that Jesus' crucifixion was a blatant injustice. He'd declared Jesus innocent no less than six times, and he'd repeatedly sought to release him. Even Pilate's wife had recognised Jesus' innocence. As a Roman, Pilate came from a people with a strong tradition of justice. To condemn a man he believed innocent went against all that tradition. Yet, as he saw it, Pilate had no choice. The Jewish leaders had him backed into a corner. They'd already complained to Rome and put his position in jeopardy. Another complaint would probably have cost him his place as governor. Peter boldly confronts his hearers with the enormity of their sin in having their Messiah executed. For them to accept the message of salvation, they must first accept that they're sinners and they must recognise Jesus as their only saviour. Second, Peter speaks of Jesus as the Holy and Just One. Verse 14. But you denied the Holy One and the Just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Holy means separated to God. Jesus is not only holy by nature, but separated to God to do his will. Holy One is also a title of the Messiah. Psalm 16 prophesied of the Messiah, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Speaking for the rest of the disciples, Peter had said to Jesus, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Even demons knew the truth, that Jesus was the Holy One. Israel's guilt in rejecting him was both monumental and inexcusable. It placed them in open rebellion against God. As well as being holy, Jesus was also completely just. He was innocent of any crime. Yet, faced with the choice between Jesus, their innocent Messiah, and the guilty murderer Barabbas, the Jews chose the latter. Even pagans such as Pilate and his wife recognised what Israel didn't. They recognised that Jesus was innocent and just. Peter's indictment of his hearers is devastatingly direct. Third, Peter confirms that Jesus was the Prince of Life and the Christ. Verse 15. You killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are all witnesses. Peter has... Peter has presented a series of striking paradoxes. Although Jesus was a servant, God exalted him. He was Israel's deliverer, yet the nation delivered him to Pilate. They rejected the holy and just one in favour of an unholy, unjust murderer. Finally, Peter comes to the greatest paradox of all. The Jews put to death the Prince of Life, 
while asking for the release of the one who had taken away life. The term Prince of Life means the originator of life. The New Testament repeatedly describes Jesus as the source of life. John's Gospel says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John's first letter says, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And John describes Jesus as the true God and eternal life. Jesus himself claimed to be the source of life. He said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And Jesus declared to Martha of Bethany, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. But Peter doesn't end with the death of the Prince of Life. It goes on to the triumph of his resurrection. He says Jesus was the one whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, that claim would have been easy to disprove. Had the Jewish leaders been able to produce Jesus' dead body, the church would have been stillborn. But the leaders couldn't prove Jesus was still dead because he wasn't. Peter's audacious claim is powerful evidence for the resurrection. The apostles' testimony was undeniable. So Peter has forcefully brought home a damning indictment of his audience. They're enemies of the very God whom they've come to the temple to worship. The one whom God has glorified, they disowned and had put to death. But they failed in their aim to destroy Jesus. He's alive, and the miracle they've witnessed was done through faith in his name. Verse 16. And his name through faith in this name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. The faith in view here is not that of the beggar, but of Peter and John. Yet Peter refuses to take credit for his faith or for the healing. He makes clear that it's Jesus who has performed the miracle through the Apostles' faith. The healed beggar is living proof that the Jews' evaluation of Jesus was wrong. Verse 17 marks a transition in Peter's sermon. He has convicted his hearers of rejecting and executing the Messiah, and he will proclaim the necessity of their repentance. But in between... Peter offers them hope. Only then will he lay down the conditions which must be fulfilled for that hope to be realised. Offering hope and setting conditions. Our next heading, Offering Hope and Setting Conditions. First, Peter recognises that these people acted in ignorance. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Jesus prayed for those who crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The Apostle Paul writes that if the rulers had understood who Jesus was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The ignorance of Peter's hearers was certainly inexcusable. The evidence that Jesus was the Messiah was clear from the Hebrew Scriptures, 
and it had also been confirmed by Jesus' words and works and his death and resurrection. Yet Peter reassures his hearers. None of them is beyond the reach of God's grace if they'll repent and turn to Christ. And Peter offers them further comfort. Their rejection and execution of the Messiah didn't thwart God's plan. Verse 18. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. The prophets whom Peter's hearers held in such high esteem foresaw Christ's death. Even the nation's rejection of Christ had been predicted. God used the Jews' evil intentions to fulfil his own purposes. Yet even so, there's hope for them if they turn from their appalling sin. Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. The glorious truth is that God has graciously provided for people what they could never achieve themselves. In Isaiah's prophecy, God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And he says, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, like a cloud your sins. There's only one way to receive God's forgiveness. That's through repentance and faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrificial death accomplished what the Jewish religious system could never do. As the letter to the Hebrews says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The word translated as blotted out in verse 19 of our passage pictures the removal of ink from a document. Unlike modern ink, in the ancient world, ink had no acid content. Consequently, it didn't bite into the papyrus or vellum used for documents. Instead, it remained on the surface where it could easily be blotted out with a damp sponge. God does far more than cross out believers' sins. He blots them out completely. They're gone beyond the possibility of review or recall. As a result, for all eternity, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Peter says that after his hearers' sins have been blotted out, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The Greek word rendered refreshing means respite. Repentance will bring the people of Jerusalem a respite from the judgment pronounced by Jesus. Peter continues, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Peter has been received up into God's presence, and he'll remain there until the fulfilment of all that the prophets had foretold from the earliest days. Only then will he return. Peter refers to Moses as an example of a prophet who spoke of these things. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. This prophet like Moses was generally regarded by the Jews to be the Messiah, 
Moses also spoke of the consequence of rejecting the Messiah. Peter quotes Moses' warning. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall utterly be destroyed from among the people. This is the hazardous position of Peter's hearers. Those who persist in rejecting Jesus Christ will forfeit God's promised blessings. But it wasn't only Moses who made such predictions, as Peter points out. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. There's no record of Samuel prophesying the Messiah directly, but he was the prophet who anointed David as king, and he spoke of a never-ending kingdom being established from David's line. This promise found its fulfilment ultimately in Jesus. But tragically, Peter's audience has been following in their ancestors' footsteps. They've been refusing to pay attention to their prophets. Jesus fulfilled numerous Old Testament prophecies, so the nation of Israel was without excuse. To the unbelieving Jews, Jesus had said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Israel's problem was moral, not intellectual. They lacked repentance, not information. Yet Peter closes on a hopeful note. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Despite their sin and rejection of the Messiah, they're still the sons of the prophets and of the covenant. They're heirs of the promised covenant blessings. Jesus was Abraham's descendant who fulfilled God's covenant promise to him. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That blessing is still available to all who will accept it. The Jewish leaders had made their choice when they killed Jesus. Peter's Jewish hearers now face their choice. God didn't permanently reject the Jews even when they rejected his son. After his resurrection, Jesus had commanded that the, that the gospel should be preached to them first. He said that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And this is what, the this, and this is what Peter and the apostles are doing. All the rich blessings of salvation and all the covenant promises are available. But Peter's hearers will only obtain them if they turn away from their iniquities. Repentance is the key that unlocks everything. In our passage today, we see several spiritual truths illustrated. We see that the best defence of the truth of the Christian faith is a changed life. The healed beggar was Exhibit A in Peter's defence of Christ's resurrection and power. In our passage we see that God is long-suffering with sinners. Despite their rejection of Christ, the Jewish nation is given another chance to be saved. In our passage today, we see the nature of true gospel witness.
It must involve the bad news of guilt and sin, as well as the good news of salvation through faith in Christ. Peter didn't soften the message to make it more appealing. There are only two possible responses to the gospel. Accept it and turn to God in repentance, or reject it and remain under God's wrath. Peter preached the truth of the gospel and called his hearers to accept it. And that gospel has been preached to all those who will hear this evening's message. Let everyone who doesn't know Christ as his saviour turn to him in repentance and faith. Amen.